Hey everybody, today is our final week on the issue of God's plan for Israel. This is our seventh look at it, and if you've been sticking around this far, uh, I applaud you, and, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're blessed by just knowing that, that God certainly does have a plan for ethnic Israel, for his covenant people in the Old Testament. Now, we looked at God's promises to Abraham and Moses and to David, uh, and even the promise in the New Covenant written in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we looked at what the prophets believe. Um, what the priests believed, what the Pharisees believed, what Jesus believed, what the apostles believed, what the New Testament authors believed. We looked at the uh, historical origins and the theological reasons for, for, uh, for the people that do not believe that God will restore ethnic Israel. Um, and today we're going to end the whole thing off just by discussing the biblical doctrine of election. Uh, the biblical doctrine of election and how election necessitates a right eschatology. Uh, if you believe in election, uh, which is commonly also referred to as predestination, but if you believe in election, which is biblical and is a good doctrine, if you believe that God has preordained history and elected believers to salvation, then you must logically reject any notion that says that someone can perform some action to nullify God's calling. If you're a Calvinist uh, you, and you believe in unconditional election, you believe in perseverance of the saints, you must reject the idea that someone can, can do something so grievous that God would take salvation away or unelect such a person. If, uh, if God chose his people with his foreordainment before the world began, then his sovereignty means that he, uh, he will win them over. They will be his, and they will not defect. Uh, if he chose his people from his foreknowledge before the world began, then his omniscience would have seen if they defected, and consequently, he would have elected someone else. So however way you go about it, whether or not you want to go through the, the route of foreordainment or foreknowledge, uh, it, it really must come down to God would have known about Israel's rejection of the Messiah. He would not have elected Israel. Uh, he would not have chosen Israel and made promises to Israel if he knew that that's the way that they were going to go. Well, let's talk about uh, election then. Reformed theology, really. The people that... Uh, that, uh, that uh, say that they believe in election. And, and um, the reason why I want to bring this up is because amillennialism, uh, the rejection of the millennial kingdom, amillennialism saying that Jesus is not going to set up a 1,000-year kingdom in Israel uh, with, with uh, saved Jewish people. Um, amillennialism has been a part of Reformed theology, um, a.k.a. covenantal theology or Calvinist theology. Uh, it's been a part of that for uh, kind of since the beginning, really. Uh, and it's built mostly on very good teaching of the original reformers, uh, John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Martin Luther, right? And it's, it's embodied in the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's a lot of good stuff. Uh, it's mostly prominent in the theological framework for the Presbyterian, Congregationalist, and some Baptist churches. And Reformed theology emphasizes a scripture-alone approach to theology, Right? No pope, no council, no magazine or something like that to form your theology. Uh, scripture alone. The Bible is the only source of divine revelation and instruction for all purposes of faith and practice. And so that's good. That's true. Reformed theology asserts that God is sovereignly in control of all creation, having foreordained all that has and will come to pass. And that doesn't limit the will of the creature. It doesn't make God the author of sin. 
simply says that God has, has orchestrated events, even using the, the will of man uh, to, to come to his own end. And so all, all of this is good and true. Reformed theology teaches that God, in his grace, chose to save people for himself, delivering them from sin and death. The salvific plan of God was foreordained before the creation of the world, unprompted by man's contributions, unrelated to the way that people would behave. This is good. This is true. And yet, for some reason, Reformed theology rejects the idea of a 1,000-year kingdom, a millennial kingdom. Reformed theology usually posits an amillennial position uh, that the church age is... Uh, that which is what's going on right now, the church age, is what Revelation 20 is trying to describe when it says that Jesus set up a 1,000-year kingdom, bound Satan. You know, uh, it, it says that uh, that's just a, an allegorical description of, of church right now. This is the kingdom. This is all the promises to Israel, and it's been transferred over to the church. And this is bad. This is wrong. That That kind of theology is not... Uh, it's it's not the normal, natural, natural, reasonable conclusion of of good hermeneutics, of good interpretation. Uh, let's ask ourselves though: How did Reformed theology get this part wrong? How is that possible? Because you know you have guys like John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, and Martin Luther. Those are the, the names that I threw out there. We, we've got more than that, but. If you have names like that, how did they get it wrong? And the answers are, well, the answer to that in part is really because the reformers, while they had it right on the issue of salvation, they weren't really fighting about the issue of eschatology. That wasn't their fight. They were taking the fight on the issue of the gospel about salvation. Uh, The battle they were fighting was arguing the nature of the Bible as the only source of divine instruction. The battle they were fighting was to clarify the gospel, the nature of salvation, where it comes from, how it happens, what it means, right? They were fighting Roman Catholicism. They were fighting religious corruption. They were fighting false teaching over the gospel. They weren't thinking about the end times. Uh, they, They were explaining faith versus works, right? Faith for salvation, uh, Bible versus Pope for authority, they weren't thinking about the end times, which you'll realize also means they weren't studying the nature of church or Israel. They were, that wasn't the topic of conversation for their day. So it's not that the reformers necessarily taught against premillennialism. They weren't teaching against the idea that Jesus would arrive and establish a 1,000-year kingdom, um, that the Jews would be saved and would be in that kingdom right they they didn't they just didn't talk about that they uh, they either didn't have the thing figured out or they didn't really have that on their mind calvin himself wrote a commentary on uh on almost uh well most of the books in the bible really and uh and he did not write a commentary on revelation um that that would be the only books other than second and third john that he didn't write a commentary on second and third john that's you know like when you look at them they're l- less than a page long in your bible so he didn't have a commentary on those but historically reformed theology didn't have a strong tradition of teaching about the end times at all and that's why there aren't many strong amillennial lectures or conferences about the end times they don't really think about it well uh if you if you just look through history Okay, let, let's take a, a, a gander throughout history. Pay attention to church history, which began premillennial. It began with the idea that Jesus was going to return before establishing a 1,000-year kingdom, right? Uh, it started off with premillennialism, and then as, uh, as the church history progressed, anti-Semitism started to creep in, 
And sure enough, all millennialism followed suit. They kind of came into the church hand in hand. Way back at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, uh, the Jews were called, quote, that odious people, end quote. So you have that as early as, uh, as around 300 years after, uh, after the time of Jesus. Uh, Augustine, in the 5th century, uh, he saw the Jewish people like, uh, like Cain in, in Genesis, right? Um, if you remember Cain and Abel, Cain murdered his brother Abel. But instead of being executed for his crime, he was condemned to wander unhappily ever after. That was like his fate. Uh, and Augustine saw Israel like that. They murdered Jesus, and instead of being destroyed, which is what they deserved, they are dispossessed, and they're just perpetually wandering. Now, there's no verse that says that. There's no, there's no warrant to think that. But he, he read the story of Cain and Abel and basically said that that's kind of an allegory or a, an equivalent to Israel and, and the church. Uh, Augustine said that the Jews might deserve to be eradicated for their crime, rejecting Jesus. Right, that, that's a quote. The, the Jews might deserve to be eradicated for their crime, rejecting Jesus. So uh, Augustine saw that they were wandering witnesses until the end times, but at the end, at the very, very end, they would, uh, they would, re- they would turn to Jesus right before the last judgment. That's what he believed, that they're just going to wander, they're going to be witnesses uh, of, uh, of what, what it's like to be outside of God's promise and to have rejected the Lord. Well, that, that was in the 5th century. So in the 3rd century, you have the, the council at Nicaea. You have 5th century Augustine, who was, uh, who was a big voice. Uh, he was a big theological voice for the church. Um, and so his interpretation on Israel, the allegorical approach on that, uh, started to reverberate uh, with a lot of people. In the 13th century, a doctrine uh, was officially recognized called Servetus Judaeorum. And uh, that means the perpetual servitude of the Jews. It fully institutionalized the reprobate status of Israel. And uh, if you remember in the 13th century, the the church was like a political power at this time, right? It was corrupted. And uh, and there were a lot of people who claimed to be Christian and, uh, and, you know, Catholicism had like crept in and everything. Um, And so this idea was that the Jews had to be subordinate to Christians and Jews couldn't exercise positions of authority. So this is, uh, well, this is racism, it's discrimination, it's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely all of that, it's anti-Semitism, um, and Christians protected their society by not living with or eating with or engaging in intimate relations with a Jew. That was church law. And I don't know if you realize the parallel here, but this is what it sounds like Israel was doing with Gentiles. Right, it, it, uh, gen, uh, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't. They wouldn't uh, have close relationships with Gentiles, etc. And if you did, you'd be executed. And the church started to do that to the Jews, and uh, and they weren't learning from uh, from the New Testament, from Acts chapter ten, where God is declaring Gentiles clean and that Jews and Gentiles should get together and 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 get along, like you see in the book of Ephesians, right? The uh, that the wall of hostility is taken down and stuff. Um, but uh, instead, there's this, this separation, segregation. Jews were eventually segregated and required to wear distinguishing dress. Uh, this was decided at the Lateran Council in uh, 1215. In Germanic lands, they wore a, uh, a conical hat, and, uh, and they had a Jew badge. It was a, a yellow disc that was sewn into their clothing. It's supposed to uh, be like a gold color to represent that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus for for money, 
which was actually silver. But uh, the markings that uh, made the Jews very visible targets, right? When you're wearing a, a hat or, a, or a, um, a badge like that, they become very visible targets. So it, it made them very difficult for Jews to travel because they would get harassed and, uh, and uh, assaulted so much. And so the Jews formed ghettos. At the end of the 13th century, Jews were expelled from, from England by Edward I. That lasted for 350 years. Um, and sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the Anglican Church uh, is against Israel and then uh, comes out with statements that say that the promised land belongs to, uh, to the Muslims, um, that, that the Jews have no part in it, etc. In the 14th century, Jewish books were burned in the 16th century, the time of the Reformation, hatred for the Jews was part of normal culture throughout Europe. That was just, that was a normal thing. It, it wasn't weird that people hated Jews. That was what everyone did. In 1648, Ukrainian Jews were butchered. Uh, a few hundred years later, you have hatred for the Jews that Martin Luther didn't really address. And uh, actually, the, the, last, the last sermon that uh, uh, Luther ever preached, it was a call for all Jews to be driven out of Germany. That was, that was what, uh, what Martin Luther taught in his last sermon. And so when I, I said a, a few hundred years later, it, it culminates into the Third Reich and Hitler and uh, the Nazi anti, anti-Semitism, which were unfortunately and disgracefully embraced by German Protestants, uh, and that's less than 100 years ago. The anti-Semitism that pervaded the church culture showed up in the theology of the church. Uh, That shouldn't be a a surprise for us. The CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, it's uh, Dutch Reformed Calvinism, not Scottish Reformed Calvinism, but uh, it it staunchly opposed premillennialism. Anyone who believed in a future kingdom for Israel was placed under investigation and was forbidden from preaching or discussing premillennialism. Now, personally, I think that amillennialism is a type of theological anti-Semitism. And maybe that's a little confusing. I don't hate amillennialists, and I don't think that the ones that I know, I don't think they hate Jews. So it's not in that sense. But I do think that their theology unreasonably opposes the plain reading of Scripture, the normal, natural understanding of God's plan for Israel. And I do think that uh, that any theology that is against the people of Israel and God's fulfillment of his promises to Israel is a theology that has been sourced from the devil. I believe that that, uh, that whole branch of teaching comes from the enemy who would want to derail our faith in God's promise-keeping, to derail our trust that God means what he says in Scripture. Israel is God's elect. God has chosen Israel. And I want to spend some time just showing you that. The Bible calls, uh, calls Christ my elect. Like God says, you are my elect or my chosen. You can use elect or chosen, either or. Uh, the Bible calls the church God's elect or God's chosen. And the Bible calls Israel my elect or my chosen. Look at uh, Isaiah 50. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 4, it says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, Israel my elect, I call you by your name. 
In uh, Isaiah 65, verse 9, it says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Right? He's equating Jacob, and, uh, which is the nation of Israel, as my chosen, my elect. In uh, verse 22, it says, They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now, this is the book of Isaiah. It's written to the nation of Judah, right? This is uh, at this uh, point in Isaiah, the, uh, the pe- people of Israel were in two nations, Israel and Judah. They had a civil war, kind of split off. Uh, and the, the northern part, the nation that retained the name Israel, they were already taken captive by Assyria. And Judah was what was left. And God was sitting here giving them hope. And he's saying, like, you're my chosen, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you back. And you'll be in a land, and no one else is going to inhabit it. You're going to plant, and no one else is going to eat that food. And my people, my chosen, will enjoy the land. And he was talking to Judah. He's talking to the people of Israel. So it's very strange that, that uh, it's the very historic theology of sovereign election, and yet the people who, uh, who espouse sovereign election advocate against the salvation of Israel. It's weird that, uh, that they'd say that uh, God has all of history figured out and under control, and then they go, oh, but Israel did this thing, and so they lost their promise. Right? It's very strange for them to say that. Let me show you Isaiah 44, verse 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel. Right? I key in on that. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not. Nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Now, God calls himself two things right at the beginning here. He says he's the king of Israel, and he says he's Israel's redeemer. Both those things are true. He's the king of Israel, and he's Israel's redeemer. And God keeps his promises. He's going to keep his promise to Israel. He declared that he would redeem Israel. He would give them land. He would multiply their number. He would bless them. He would have them bless the world. He declared that from of old, from hundreds of years before delivering even part of those promises, thousands of years before doing all of that, right? He says, I'm the one, I've declared it. No other God can do this. I'm the one that said it from long, long ago. Verse 21, he says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. And I think God meant that too. He will not forget Jacob. He will not forget Israel. And then he talks about their future salvation. Verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Look at how God celebrates his fulfillment of promise. Right? He rejoices over his redemptive work on unworthy sinners. And so should we. 
Or he rejoices over the fact that he saves Israel even though Israel isn't worthy. Isn't that the story of salvation for everyone? Isaiah contains plenty of prophetic previews of how God does what he says he'll do. And, and there was a prediction of captivity, a prediction of being recovered from captivity. Both came true. Look at uh, chapter 45, verse 17. But Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Right? The salvation God promised to the people of Israel is everlasting salvation. It's not taken away. It's not forfeited. It's not canceled. God has a plan for Israel, and it will echo into eternity. God knows Israel will reject Jesus. He knows the leaders will hate him and crucify him. He knows one of the disciples will betray him. All of that is in the Old Testament prophecies as well. All of that's talked about in the Old Testament. So God wasn't surprised when it happened, and it didn't cancel any promises because those also were prophesied. He speaks plainly in chapter 46 to Israel, uh, calling them out for how apostate and unbelieving and unfaithful and unworthy they were. Look at uh, Isaiah 46, verse 8. It says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Now, all of that is to say that God already knows what will happen. God has already declared what will happen. So when he said he promised stuff to Abraham's line and to David's biological descendancy, he knew he would keep those promises. He knew it. And scripture reveals how the world will end, how redemptive history will be consummated, how God will fulfill every single promise. Over 200 times, by the way, Over 200 times in the Bible, God is called the God of Israel. Over 200 times, he's the God of Israel. Over, uh, there are over 2,000 references to Israel in scripture, and not one of them means something different than ethnic Israel, right? 2,000 references. There, There are 73 references to Israel in the New Testament. Each of them refers to Israel, If you say the Old Testament promises that refer to Israel really meant the church, you have no precedent for that kind of an interpretation. Approximately 70% of the Bible is the story of the nation of Israel from start to finish. And you have, you have the Old Testament, it's all about Israel, and then there's this, this break, and then this church, and then when you get back to Revelation, the church gets raptured, and then it's back to Israel. And in Romans, it unpacks that for you. It says, yeah, they, you know, they rejected the Messiah. And so they're, they're kind of out of it for now. And it's transferred over. But they can be grafted back in and God will graft them back in. He still has a plan for Israel. God is a God who keeps his promises. If you believe, if you believe in unconditional election, that God predestines people to salvation before the foundation of the world, then you certainly can't conclude that people can forfeit God's promises just because of something they did. 
If God already knew the plan, saw the events as they would unfold, and made his choices uninfluenced by us, then at no point could he rescind his promise unless he states that this is the conditions by which it would turn out. Whatever God chose to do, he will do. Whatever he promised, he will perform. That's what makes him sovereign. Nothing will thwart him, right? His plan does not hinge on our success or failure. His plan does not hinge on our behavior. If you believe in perpetuity of salvation or eternalness of salvation, if you believe in perseverance of the saints, you know, using uh, Calvinist terms, if you believe that salvation cannot be lost since God knew and foreordained before the beginning of time, then you must affirm the perpetuity of ethnic Israel, of a future redemption, a future kingdom, a future fulfillment of their promises. If you believe God is faithful even when we are not, then you must affirm that God will keep his promise even when Israel is unfaithful. All millennialism, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense for, for Calvinists and for, for people of Reformed theology. It doesn't make sense for anyone who uh, understands the doctrine of election. All millennialism makes sense for Arminians because Arminians believe you can lose your salvation. It makes sense for process theologians because process theologians think that God is, he's not omniscient. He's kind of figuring things out as history is moving on. It makes sense for uh, Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, for you know, people who think that uh, our will directs God's will and stuff. But if you get election, if you understand election, then you can't say that God canceled his promise to Israel because of something they did. How could they do anything unless he elects them to? And if he says, I elected them to, how could they defect? Right? Would you argue that his grace is resistible then if you're Calvinist? God keeps his promises. God is faithful even when people are unfaithful. He's, he's, He's more faithful. He's more than faithful. He's more faithful even when we're more unfaithful. You see it in the, the story of Hosea. Hosea marries a prostitute. She goes away to, to do her whoring. And she's sold in the marketplace as property. And she's stark naked when she's sold. What does Hosea do? God tells him to go and buy her back to keep his covenant to her. Right? And this is, a, this is a, a big illustration that God is using to demonstrate that God is going to buy back the prostitute nation of Israel who whores after other nations and other gods, right? Yet God is faithful to keep his covenant despite his people's unfaithfulness. They're unfaithful, yet God keeps his covenant. He doesn't cancel anything. God is faithful. You'll see it in Ezekiel 16. Speaking of God's unconditional love, it says in Ezekiel 16, verse 3, um, thus says the Lord Yahweh to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. So here, here's God. He's, he's saying, I rescued you out of pagan origins. Your origin, your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. You know, you're, uh, I, I rescued you out, out of all that. I called Abram out when the whole world was unsaved. He goes on to describe Israel as a baby that was abandoned in an open field covered in the blood of birth. Right? It, was just, it was just born and it's just been abandoned. It's powerless. It's doomed. Verse 6, he says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. God says, I gave you life. Right? This, this is right there where, where, when God calls Abram, saves him to make Abram into God's own holy nation. 
right? He, he takes this, this guy, this person who has no power to, uh, to stand worthy before the Lord, and yet God says, live. God talks about how he saved Israel out of his own grace as his bride, to be his bride, but, and yet she whored after other gods and worldliness. Look at uh, verse 26. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Verse 28. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord Yahweh, because you did all these things and the deeds of a brazen prostitute. So here, Israel betrayed God, went after the stuff of the world, demeaning herself, abandoning the relationship to God over and over and over and over and over again. But God is saying he is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. Verse 60, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. Right? What does it mean when he says it's an everlasting covenant? It means it's a covenant that cannot be canceled, forfeited, right? And he's saying like, I'm going to atone for you for all you've done. God is saying again, I will, I will, I will. He'll remember them. He'll restore them. He'll fulfill his everlasting covenant. God's love is unconditional. His promise is irrevocable, right? It, uh, it, God's love for Israel is not canceled by Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, he will someday in the future restore Israel and fulfill all that was promised to Abram. He'll do all of that. Just a, a few other verses to, re, to remind you that God won't cancel his promise to Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, when you look at passages like this, it tells you God did not choose Israel or he, God did not free Israel from slavery because they were so mighty or because they were so worthy, right? His reason was simply because, well, I, I made a promise to Abraham. I got to keep it. God is not empowering Israel to conquer the land of Canaan because Israel deserved it or because Israel was, uh, you know, w- was so impressive. The, the one reason was simply because God promised Abraham. I got to keep my promise to Abraham. Israel didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. Israel can't forfeit it or nullify it. God made a promise to Abraham. God will fulfill it. I'm going to end with, uh, with a psalm. Uh, I just want to read to you a psalm and then, and then I'll we'll just go over, you know, what's the point of knowing all this? How does this help us, you know? All right, uh, Psalm 89, um, starting in verse 1. 
It says, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, this psalm is about the steadfast love of God. And it's not steadfast love if it's love that he's just going to cancel when you upset him enough. Israel wouldn't speak of God's steadfast love if God was going to take his steadfast love away from them. Uh, Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. I think God tells us over and over and over again that he has chosen Israel and he will be faithful to Israel. That Israel will be uh, unfaithful to him, will prostitute herself to other nations and other gods, will betray him again and again and again. And yet still he will not remove them. He will not forget them. He will not cancel them but he will remain faithful. He'll keep his promise to Abraham. He'll keep his promise to David. He'll keep his promise. So what's the benefit of, uh, of learning all this stuff? Because I'll just be upfront with you right now. This isn't going to, this isn't, you know, going to be something that you're like waking up on Monday and being like, oh, I got to apply this now, right? You, you don't read like God's going to keep his promise to Israel. And then you're like, ah, now I know how to behave at work. Or at school. It does, it's, it's not going to transform every minute of your life. But what happens when you just have your eschatology right? What happens when you have your, uh, your end times theology right? What, what happens when you understand the plan for Israel? I think that there are, uh, there are five simple benefits for it that you should care about. The first is that God is glorified. I know that sounds generic, but uh, when I say God is glorified, it means, that, it means that we get to stand in awe of his faithfulness to see, like, I can't believe, God, that you are going to keep your promise no matter how badly you're betrayed, because that tells me how gracious you are. That tells me how merciful you are. That tells me how patient you are. That tells me how long-suffering you are. Right? God is glorified because then we stand in awe of his faithfulness to keep his promise. We stand in awe of the certainty of the, of the future that's to come. I think a second benefit is that Christ is exalted. I mean, what's going to be the last image of Jesus on the earth? What, what's the last thing that people saw? Him on a cross, right? And there, were, there were a few disciples that saw him resurrected. But uh, for the rest of the world, you know, the unbelieving world, they saw him on a cross. They saw him die. That was the end of the story. Was, was that, is that the last image for the unbelievers to have, right? Is, is that what's going to happen? They, that's all they remember. And then he returns and he, he uh, judges the world and we all go to our eternal stations. Or is it going to be him returning 
And when he returns, he defeats his enemies and then he establishes his kingdom and he reigns for a thousand years and he proves to everyone on the earth, believer and unbeliever, that he can reign on earth as a ruler and be better than anyone else who has ever lived. That he will be a better leader, a better ruler, a better king than has ever lived. It'll be him on a throne in Jerusalem after his reign. He'll do everything he said he'd do. And at at the end of that, there will be no excuse. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He will have proven it. Third benefit of getting your eschatology right, of getting Israel right, is uh, that election is, uh, is proven most powerfully and majestically in God's election of Israel. Like you'll just understand election, predestination more powerfully and more majestically. God proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he forgives sinners out of his grace. He doesn't give up on people because they perform some grievous evil. Salvation cannot be lost. God's promises cannot be forfeited. Even for the nation who murdered Jesus while they were still enemies, God demonstrated his love for them by sending Jesus to die for them too, right? Even in the moment that they were murdering him, he was still dying even for the people of Israel. A fourth benefit, we'll kind of skim through this one, but it's just the mystery of the New Testament is upheld. The mystery of the New Testament. Now, many times in the New Testament, it says, uh, the mystery of the gospel is being revealed. And mystery, uh, for us, you know, that's like a, a Sherlock Holmes kind of story. But mystery, mysterion in the Greek, it really just means something that wasn't known previously. No one knew about this before, but now it's revealed. Oh, that was a mystery. That was an unknown thing, a previously unknown thing that is now known. Uh, and and that's, that's what this whole church is, the church age, right? The, it, it's the age of the grafting in of the Gentiles, because that was not known in the Old Testament times. They didn't expect that. That, that was the new thing that God is doing, right? The New Testament, the, the church age, that's the mystery revealed, the new thing that God's doing. And that's not a forever thing. It's not that the, that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews indefinitely and eternally. It's that we're, uh, the Gentiles are being grafted in, and then God will take Israel and graft them back in. Fifth and final benefit is that... Uh, if you, if, if you do it right with Israel and with eschatology and stuff, then scripture remains perspicuous or a different word for that. Scripture remains understandable. It means what it says. You can read it and you can hear it and you can take it to heart, right? You don't need some theological agenda to decode it. You don't have to take it every time it says Israel, you have to switch it to church or every time it says Jew, switch it to Christian or every time it says Gentile, switch it to non-Christian or, you know, you don't have to do that. When it says kingdom, you have to switch it to just invisible collection of people all over the world that just share the same theology. Like you don't have to try to decode it and make it all weird and complicated. And, and, you know, when you read it, you don't, when someone else reads it, you don't have to sit down and be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you want to understand that, let me give you the decoder. And you don't have to be like, every time it says this word, it really means that you don't have to do that, right? Prophecy can be understood. The, the, the books just mean what they say. You read it and you get it. The book of Revelation does not become a book for mystics and allegorists and decoders. It's a letter. That letter, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's written to seven churches 
which is seven regions of churches, and it's meant for the, 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 uh, the messenger of that church, the angel of that church, the, the, uh, the guy that like, uh, he has a certain role. He's supposed to get the scroll that he's been given, stand up in his congregation. He's supposed to read it out to his, his congregation. They're just going to listen to it. They don't have to sit there, decode anything. They're just going to listen to it. And it says, blessed is the one who reads it, blessed is the one who hears it and takes it to heart. Right? It's, it's meant to be understood. You don't have to sit there and be like, oh my gosh, what is this? I don't, I don't get it. It means what it says. You don't have to be like, who has the deciphering code? You don't have to do that. If scripture means what it says, you can read it, you can hear it, you can take it to heart, you can be blessed. It's not a riddle. It doesn't say a bunch of things about Israel and kingdom and, and, you know, and Jews and all that stuff and then end up meaning something else entirely less majestic and awesome. It doesn't go, there's going to be a kingdom. All the nations are going to flow to, uh, to Zion and they're going you know, to seek for the Lord and they're going to hold on to the Jews and be like, you know the Lord, so show us. And, and then uh, when someone goes, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? You're like, oh, that's the church age. And you go, wait, but it sounded so awesome. It said that, you know, mountains are brought down low and, and valleys up high and rivers flow and the, the, the land is, is incredible and, the, you know, the, the lion can lie, uh, the wolf and the uh, and, and, and lamb can lie down together and stuff and, you know, lions and, and you know, there are no predators. There's no danger. Uh, people can live hundreds of years. Someone who, do, who lives only 100 years is like an infant. And you hear all this stuff about this kingdom. What's it going to be like in the kingdom? And you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's like the church age. That's, that's right now. And all of a sudden, it becomes so dull and so, so mundane. That there's, there's no glory in it, right? You, you look around and you just go, oh, this is what all of that was talking about? All of that incredible language to say that people will, the, the nations will be flowing to Jerusalem to seek out God. That's what's describing right now. All those incredible promises that God said, they don't, they don't get so badly neutered where they just turn into, yeah, it's this. Right now, it's the church age. And uh, after this time is, is done, the church age, after the time of the Gentiles, after all that's fulfilled, Christ will rapture the church out of the earth. And that'll inaugurate the time of his return. Right? Then tribulation will begin during which God will save the Jews. And after he saves the Jews, after they come to salvation, Jesus will physically return to the earth with his people. And he will defeat his enemies. He'll sit on his throne in Jerusalem. He'll gather the Jews from all over the, the world to be with him, to be with him and with the church. And he will reign in Jerusalem, in Israel, for a thousand years before he finally judges sin eternally. And when he does, everyone who does not believe in him will go into a lake of fire. Then he'll make a new heavens and a new earth. And he and all his people, his kingdom, they will continue to persist and live in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. And that is the awesome and glorious future for Israel and for the church, for the Jew and the Gentile for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ because God keeps his promises.
Amen? Let's pray. God, I hope we get it right. I hope uh, we can we can teach on this and have other pastors and teachers invest in their understanding of it because I know that this is one of those topics that everyone just tries to excuse himself from. But when we get it right, it establishes and secures such a beautiful trust in you and in your plan for the future and it loosens our grasp, our stubborn grasp onto this life in the here and now. Lord, it makes us more eager and hopeful and joyful in anticipation for that blessed time. We don't know when it'll begin. We don't know when when rapture will happen. It'll, It'll come unexpectedly. No one knows the hour. It'll be like a thief in the night. But when that, when that happens, it'll begin that chain of events which will culminate in your, your physical return and then your fulfillment of your promise to Israel in the restoring and establishing of a kingdom. I can't wait, Lord. And we pray that the troubles of this life and even the treasures of this life all would fade in our sight because we're looking beyond it and we're looking at at what it's going to be like to be with you in that kingdom in that day and then to be with you for eternity free from the curse of sin. Bless your church with the right understanding of Israel. Bless your church with the right understanding of you. Help us to take the scripture, read it, hear it, understand it, and take it to heart that indeed we would be blessed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.